Strange Brews is supported by Goose Island Beer Company. Since 1988, Goose Island has constantly innovated how and what they brew and introduced numerous award-winning beers, including their barrel-aged stouts and ales. Goose Island, to what's next? That's at gooseisland.com. They felt like the malt was, you know, a very powerful vitamin. Come on, Joe, let's have that beer, Yes, sir. Right away, sir. Why do you want that beer so bad? Because he's thirsty, dummy. Cheap beer and a sympathetic ear. Step right up. What kind of beer? What kind of beer do you like? Dad, Bob broke your beer. No, I didn't. Doug broke it. From WBEZ Chicago, this is the Strange Brews Podcast. I'm Allison Cuddy. And I'm Andrew Gill. Today on the show, we will welcome the authors of the comic book story of beer, Jonathan Hennessy and Mike Smith. Um, and no, Jonathan Hennessy has no relation to the cognac brand. He has an extra Which e. we were dis- deeply disappointed when they – well, we didn't, they didn't show up, but we, we didn't get any Hennessy in the mail. Yeah, no, no Hennessy <laughs> in the mail. The comic book. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and, and that's not the next thing he has in the works. Uh, but he was in Rushmore as a hand model, so – uh, look forward to that. Wow. Um, yeah. It only took 9,000 years, but comic beer now has its own comic book, which yeah. is great. It's a really uh, intriguing read. Um, mm-hmm. Very uh, interesting. And I assume lots of uh, people will get it for Christmas this year. Um, you know, for that relative who doesn't know what to get the beer loving geek in their family. Comic it's a book great story idea. of beer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, as always, we have a beer to fuss over and dissect. And Allison, uh, what do you have today? Oh yeah, and like this is just the freshest beer possible. So I was in Evanston, Illinois, yesterday, running some errands, and there was a little street festival going on. And Sketchbook Brewing Company, which operates out of a an alley in um, in Southeast Evanston. Uh, was having a tasting. They had just opened up as part of the fair, but they've also just put out their first barrel-aged beer. Exciting. Yeah, very exciting. And so we went in, tried some of their beer, and then I bought number 56 of 566 bottles of their barrel-aged scotch ale. Uh, It was put into bottles this month. So it's their Lapwing barrel-aged scotch ale. Cool. Let's uh, let's get some tasting, and I have some uh, fussy beer music for us to listen to. Uh, the fussy beer music this week is James Elkington and Nathan Salzberg. They're doing a, a version of the Smiths' hit "Reel Around the Fountain." Of course, this is from their Guitar Duets album. The album is called Amsass. It's available to stream now on SoundCloud, right. and uh, will be released. I think this week. Um, or Am Sace, if you're a fan of Showgirls. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so uh, pretty good music to accompany uh, good Scottish ale. The uh, colors, you know, what you would expect of a Scottish ale. A little bit, you Deeper. can see through it a little more than you might some. It's not completely opaque. Minimal hops, uh, complex secondary malt flavors, uh, nice caramel yeah, definitely complex malt flavors um, and very pleasant beer. I like it a lot. Their beers yeah. are really great. Yeah, you know, and they actually, uh, they're fans of the show. Uh, I, we get emails from them often. Um, and so, um, 
since we haven't been able to visit their brewery, I'm glad we have at least had their beer on the show and we've talked about them yes. a good amount. They, I think, are um, expanding a little bit. Um, so their little tiny alley space might be getting another entrance or something. Yeah, like yeah. That, they so. have like a storefront now. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. It's very nice. They've, it's a nice, sweet little tap room. Very simple, but they're great. Um, I think making a, a beer for the new uh, Whole Foods. They uh, already Green are Bay serving. Road their Whole Foods beer. I did not sample it while I was there. I focused on some other things, but they have uh, an organic beer that you can buy if you're in the area um, on Green Bay Road, and it's like five bucks. Nice, yeah. It's a more and more common uh, business model for breweries, local breweries, to partner with these uh, high-end grocery stores like Beguile and some of the Chicago Whole Foods. Uh, I know that the one in my neighborhood has a uh, pale ale that's Edgewater Pale Ale. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's the Bio Pale Ale that Sketchbook um, uh, would made exclusively for the opening of this new Whole Foods. And it's interesting, Mariano's and Whole Foods are kind of like in that competition right now. Right. Whole Foods encouraging, yeah, stroll around, have some wine and, or beer. And, you know, um, this new Target that's coming in very close to Navy Pier is uh, has gotten a lot of press for being the first Target in the country to allow uh, beer drinking while shopping. Um, although I think that may have been a little bit overblown. Uh, what's actually seems to be happening is there's a Starbucks with the evenings program oh, in there. So going can, into that Target. Yeah, you can get the beer at the Starbucks and carry it throughout the store, which is kind of revolutionary. But it's not like Target is going to set up a bar in the back. You know what I mean? So That could be really crazy on, you know... Um, Black Friday? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those... Folks on Black Friday, the last thing they need is to be drunk as right, well. Right, right. Uh, well, we'll take a quick break and get on to some beer news right after this. This is the Strange Brews Podcast. I'm Andrew Gill with Allison Cuddy, and it's time for some beer news I think you probably already know the biggest beer news story <laughs> that we have to talk about. Right. Allison? Yeah, um, the Lagunitas Heineken deal. Uh, Lagunitas sold a 50% stake in their company to Heineken, and this is one of the biggest deals in craft beer I mean, uh, history. Yeah, the, the rumor... They've, they're not saying how much money changed hands. I know. I for the like at first, someone said a billion dollars could be worth a billion dollars. Well, yeah, and they, that's what that's the figure I was about to quote is that for a fifty percent stake, the rumor is they paid five hundred million dollars, which would value Lagunitas at a billion dollars. Made a billion dollars, which is insane. Is that the first craft billion dollar brewery. I mean, there are billionaires like Jim Cook and. Right. Um, Ken Grossman, uh, anyways, uh, some of those early founders of Sam Adams and Sierra Nevada. But yeah, I wonder if any of those companies have been valued at a billion. I'm, I imagine Sam Adams would be. Yeah. <clears throat> but, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. A lot has been written. A lot of people have had great insights into this deal. 
Tony McGee has written probably 10,000 words on it himself <laughs> since the deal became public. He, he put a lot of thought into this. And yeah. well, he should. Well, he should. Yeah. I mean, how could you go from being the biggest critic of, you know, breweries selling to larger breweries to doing being. something of that sort yourself right. um, without a lot of thought? Because Tony McGee is a very thoughtful guy. But, um, you know, I've been thinking about it as far as like a macro point of view on the beer industry and the beer movement and whatnot. And if you look at the sale of Goose Island to AB InBev. For like $38 million. Yeah, for the beginning to Lagunitas. I feel like that defines a discrete era in this this beer industry and this, you know, movement that we talk about. So what, that's like five years what I mean, is that era? It's I think it's like a, the transitional era. It's like late stage, late stage craft beer or something. I haven't come up with a good name for it, but it's the time when you look at all the things that have happened. You know, um, breweries are proliferating everywhere. We're getting it in our grocery stores. You know, um, there are beer festivals every weekend mm-hmm. in places like Chicago, at least. Um, and uh, and but then there are also the whale hunters, you know, the guys who have gotten so obsessive with rare bottles of beer um, that they lose sight of the whole ecosystem um, of the the industry. I just feel like we we've hit late stage craft beer or something, you know, um, and now we're moving on to something new. Um, where the definition that the Brewers Association has of craft beer will either mean that the movement scales back to be more about very small breweries or it's going to have to be more all-encompassing of like quality rather than size Mm -hmm. and ownership stakes. Because you're referring to founders and the way their deal kind of pushed at the definition of craft beer and the way Sam Adams has been doing for a very long time. Right. It gets to continue to be within that category and yet – looks nothing like a craft brewery from the point of view of, say, something like Sketchbook. Right. I and mean, then, that's my point of view, not Sketchbooks. Yeah, and the, but then Lagunitas will be out as well, yeah. you know. Um, but, I mean, Tony McGee notably has a lot of different definitions. He calls this a joint venture rather than an acquisition, um, which is also a trend we've been seeing lately, like Firestone Walker just uh, – did a joint venture, or not not those exact words, but they're partnering with Duville. Um, and it's not a sale. It's a um, partnership in some way. So there are all these way, words and new arrangements that breweries are coming up with to avoid acquisition and selling out completely. I think that the thing that is fascinating, I mean, I, I agree with you, um, and there's different ways you can slice that. But I was thinking about this, that Greg Hall selling Virtue Cider to Anheuser-Busch, InBev. You know, look at it. Like he was the the master brewer, the head brewer at Goose Island from 91 to 2011 when they sold it. So you have that yeah. long period of time where you're developing Goose Island and then it becomes this thing that you can sell, right? And then they carve off the kind of experimental program. But he only started Virtue Cider within the window that you're talking about. Yeah. And he's already sold it to AB InBev. And, I mean, I don't know if, like, and I this is, this is not about personality or any, I'm not making any judgment about it. It's like, 
do you once you do something like that, do you start something like Virtue Cider? I mean, the the line was that they're growing really fast, and they're dealing with. Um, you know, they they just are cash strapped. I think they need more money. They need help. They need resources to keep it to sustain it. Right. So they're you know like so that to me was kind of fascinating that there's a story of sustainability and what that looks like in a fairly short period of time and the fact that you could grow something so quickly and it could be sold in such a short period of time and it's not just virtue cider. It's all these different breweries. I mean that are that this is happening to. So um, there's something about the speed. Uh, and the scale of craft beer that has changed significantly in the last five years. Definitely. And, I mean, obviously, the Goose Island, like you say, would be the thing that kind of like the opening shot maybe for at least this era of craft beer. And even then an era we could talk about as being four years. Right. But it does seem like so much has happened. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one distinction I would make maybe between the Virtue Cider selling to – uh, technically, Goose Island, which is owned its, itself by AB InBev. Right. So it's sort of – Well, uh, Goose Island is going to manage it, right? And they're going to do their um, bottling and distribution out of Goose Island in Chicago. But right. AB InBev owns – Yeah. They have a, a majority share, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it is, for all intents and purposes, AB InBev. But, you know, the, there's an article we were reading uh, in uh, at Michigan Biz – M-I-B-I-Z dot com um, about the virtue sale. And it you know points out it sounds a little bit more like they were coming from a point of weakness to sell. You know, they were kind of like we're at the end of our rope. Um, maybe not the end of our rope, but we're strapped. You know, we can't do it our own, on our own. This goes back to that argument that I was making many months ago about whether this pace is the thing that's kind of unsettling a lot of craft beer, that if you're trying to grow at a pace or develop product at a pace that isn't sustainable for the the size of your business. Right. You know. I mean, and, and it's, you know, for Virtue, it's lucky for them that Greg Hall, you know, has the relationship with Goose Island that he has. Um, and that's something that the owner of um, Vandermill Cider mentions, um, you know, that cider makers are generally so small that they haven't attracted the attention of large you know, breweries yeah. or companies like AB InBev. Um, and so, you know, the fact that Craig Hall built Goose Island himself uh, probably plays into the fact that they were willing to come in and sort of almost in a way bail them out right, of being right. sort of overextended. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, it is, it's not like, I mean, like it's the ultimate kind of insider relationship in a way, not to suggest there's anything untoward. But right. I mean, it's also, I mean, look at like, you're right. Like cider, who was really talking about cider? And there were these like small handful of cider makers, most of them not local in the way that virtue is, that just that was all you saw. And now it's like Angry Orchard is everywhere. Speaking right. again of Sam Adams, I mean, it must be – it just must be exponentially that much harder a struggle if you're trying to get a smaller – as much as we're seeing like with the Whole Foods sketchbook, for example, or Whole Foods off-color, any of these small breweries getting onto the shelves of like fairly high-end retailers, you're just – to have that much shelf space taken up by a brand associated with a beloved brand must right. be really, really challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Um and then, you know, comparing that to the Lagunita sale, though, um, where, you know, Tony McGee is coming from this place of, uh, of strength, I would say. You know, like they hold all the cards and 
um, they actually sought out Heineken, uh, he says. You know, he says he wouldn't have entertained a, a deal from Miller Coors or ABNBev, but they actually approached Heineken themselves. And they Heineken wasn't thinking about expanding to this market until they met up and shared a vision um, and got on the same page. So I think it's interesting, but uh, there was a, a editorial that Jeff Allworth wrote in All About Beer that I thought hit on a lot of good points uh, that kind of needed to be made and considered at least. Mm-hmm. What's um, the title is We Need to Dial It Back a Notch. <laughs> and he's just kind of pointing out that Tony McGee in writing about his this sale is so hyperbolic. Um, I mean, he's citing Nietzsche and he's sort of talking about craft beer with this like capital. He's, it's a messianic um, kind yeah. of email, right? Like he he's like it's he's a visionary and he's craft beer is bringing a light to the world. Right. And and you know, they have a message and maybe not everyone gets it, but they're arriving at the right moment in Heineken. Yeah, it was very like um you know, he'd be a great, I don't know, Tony, if you're considering a side project, you'd be a great, you know, preacher. <laughs> you, you definitely have the vision and, yes. you know, get people excited. Yeah. when the Church of Craft Beer. I mean, they have like, you know, we have the Craft Beer Bible. Why not have a church? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's a good point. Um, yeah, there's a church of uh, uh, John Coltrane, you know. Right. <laughs> Why not? Why not? I mean, really what's going to happen is pretty similar to like our last episode with Founders, right? Lagunitas is going to start brewing Lagunitas IPA in Heineken facilities in Mexico and Europe. Mm -hmm. That's what he said. They're going to sell that fresh IPA to people in those areas. And it's going to be better than the Lagunitas or whatever they've been able to get because it's fresher. What people have been dying for fresh Lagunitas in these markets? I don't know. I mean, I guess, but but when they do get it, um, there'll be some sales. You know, that's what's going to happen. It's not they're not going to go to the local Lagunitas brew pub and connect with the bartender and hear the story of the 420 shutdown and all that kind of stuff. Right. You know? I mean that that's the the. The upshot, and it's like th- seeing that on a global. I mean, it's it's no different than any other kind of company trying to go global. I mean, you start with this, and but craft beer in particular, that I think for most of the makers have like held up in that maybe that hyperbolic way, the way McGee is about craft beer in general. Like the local, it's all about place. It's you know you know knowing who's making your beer and sitting down and have that conversation with them. Well, if you're distributing Lagunitas around the world, what does that do to local beer around the world. I mean, what about all those small breweries that are starting in other parts of the world? And isn't this just about homogenizing culture um, when you kind of try to take your business? And why, why do you need to? Right. You know? And that's kind of, I mean, to me, it's like Disney or something, right? There's Disney World or Disneyland and um, there's also Disney products all around the world. And when you buy a Disney product, you get a slice of that magic. You know, you feel that feeling that Disney evokes in you. And if you drink a Lagunitas beer in, you know, France, it's going to evoke that California, Petaluma, Chicago IPA feeling. And you're going to get that American craft brew feeling. And 
uh, experience, but it's not going to be a, an authentic, you know, deep experience. It will be sort of one of these, you know, if I, I guess I've never been to Euro Disney, but, you know, <laughs> um, you know, maybe it's something akin to that. I, I don't know if that's a good an analogy or not, but, you know, bottling this, uh, this homegrown vibe, this American craft beer vibe, which is something Tony talks about, mm -hmm. and spreading it around the world. It's a vibe, but I don't know how much more it is than that, is my point. Ah. Uh, um, so, well, anyhow. Yeah, it's, um, it's fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating, and it marks, I think, a big, a pretty big change in the industry. And, um, you know, I guess... A time of change is a time for all of us to stop and take a look at what we're doing. Um, and so we have to let you know a little news, listeners. Um, our next episode of Strange Brews will be our last, at least in this format. Um, uh, we're going to let you know more in our next episode. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think it's kind of a fitting time to yeah. sort of wrap things up. Maybe we'll be back at some point. Maybe not. Um, yeah, we've been around for two and a half years. We're very lucky because I think we got to cover a big swath of that era that you were just talking about um, from very, very local small enterprises to some of these big kind of consolidations and transformations that everyone is covering right now um, and, and excited about and following. And so it's been fantastic to be a part of the craft beer scene. But yeah, for now... We're going to wrap it up, and we'll see what happens down the road. Yeah, so uh, if you would like to uh, share, I don't know, your thoughts or any you know thing about the show, uh, feel free to call our hotline. It's 1-888-915-9922. Um, our next show will be two weeks from when this show posts. Um, and so, yeah, if you call and share your thoughts or any anything uh, you want to share, yeah, uh, we I would mean, love it. That's been one of the best parts. The best part of the podcast is getting to know all of you and those of you who came out to our events and signed up for your fan number. Um, that's been fantastic. So uh, give us a call. Let us know your thoughts. Yes. Share the feelings. Yeah. <laughs> We'll be right back after these messages with uh, Jonathan Hennessy and Mike Smith, the authors of the comic book Story of Beer. And actually, it'll just be me for the interview. Allison couldn't make it. The Strange Brews podcast is supported by Audible. They have over 180,000 titles for you to download. And if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash strangebrews, you can get one for free. Any recommendations, Andrew? Well, uh, I've been talking about this Tom Robbins book, B is for Beer. But there's also a book called The Brewer's Tale, um, which is another book that tries to cover the whole history of beer all in one book. And since it's not a comic book, it's a great option for Audible. Uh, you don't need the pictures, you know, so. Well, go to audiblepodcast.com slash strangebrews so you can download that for free. And if you don't like it, you can return it and get another one for free. Great deal. Well, this is the Strange Brews Podcast. I'm Andrew Gill, and I'm joined today by two guys who have just kind of created 
in some ways like the Forrest Gump of beer, um, but maybe even more epic, uh, definitely more epic than Forrest Gump. My guests are Jonathan Hennessy and Mike Smith. They are the authors of the comic book Story of Beer, the world's favorite beverage from 7000 BC to today's craft brewing revolution. Welcome, Jonathan and Mike. Thank you very much. And a very good day to you too, Andrew. Thanks so much for having us on. Yeah, um, so I should explain to uh, our listeners that we are doing this through the magic of audio editing. And Mike, you are uh, presumably in Connecticut? I'm actually in Brooklyn, New York right now. I now live in Brooklyn, the wonderful borough. And Jonathan, you are in Los Angeles? That's right. I'm I'm just outside Los Angeles. And you're in Chicago. We have Trifecta. Exactly. We've got all all coasts, uh, the east, west, and the third coast. <laughs> just missing one time zone. <laughs> that damn mountain time always gets in the way. <laughs> so, yeah, Mike, uh, you were a brewer with Back East Brewing Company. Yeah. You, you still work with them? Uh, actually, my significant other was relocated to New York City a couple months ago. So I have reluctantly resi- very reluctantly resigned uh, my position of head brewer at uh, Back East. Yeah, I've been a professional brewer for about, I think at last count, 17 years. Most of that was at the Harpoon Brewery in Boston. Uh, But before that, I worked at a brew pub in uh, Austin, Texas called Waterloo Brewing. And then I also worked at a place called Mayflower in Plymouth and back east. And And, uh, Jonathan, you you live in Los Angeles. And uh, the little bio I got with the book says... You work in film and television, and so I, I looked. You obviously, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the other graphic novels you've done recently. Uh, but I looked you up on IMDb, and I saw you worked as a production assistant on my favorite movie of all time, Rushmore. I was going to say Rushmore. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I can confirm that. I'm, you know, they don't do like some kind of massive talent search before they hire production assistants. So I can't, I can't really claim that I was on Rushmore for anything uh, more than being in the right place at the right time. But uh, yes, that, that, was a, that was a show. I was uh, the set production assistant, so I was, I was there for the whole thing. We shot in Houston, Texas, and I think it was 1997 when we shot, 97 or 98. And I'm, I haven't looked at too closely at the print, but I think that I was actually called on to hand double Jason Schwartzman uh, once or twice, so my hand might be in it. That is incredible. Well, moving on, though, to the graphic novel uh, section of your career, you've recently done nonfiction graphic novels on the U.S. Constitution and the Gettysburg Address. Right. And now you're following those two with the comic book story of beer. And, you know, I just was wondering which of these three topics were you most excited to tell the story of? After, you know, two books about politics and war. The, Getty, the Gettysburg Address graphic adaptation is, is basically a, a book about the Civil War, just using the Gettysburg Address as a lens to look through the whole history. You know, I really felt like I needed a break from politics and war. And honestly, you know, the researching the Gettysburg book made me very depressed at times. So I was happy to pivot away from that and do something a little bit lighter. But all the same, I was surprised to see, you know, there's a lot of lightness in brewing history, and there was, you know, quite a bit of darkness, too. There's a lot of wars in beer. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. You you didn't uh, lay off the politics and war in this book at all, really. <laughs> 
Yeah, that 17th century, that 17th century as a mother, with all those religious wars and, uh, and you know, the atrocities that were committed by Catholic versus Protestant, Protestant versus Catholic crime and, uh, crime and all that. And, and a, lot of those, a lot of those wars were funded by taxes on, on brewing or on beer consumption. That's one of the incredible parts. The, the parts, I, I should say, you know, I think of myself as someone who knows a good bit about beer, but I found myself going, oh, a lot as I read this book because the pieces were kind of fit together. Excellent. That's just what we wanted. Yeah. I mean, that's why I sort of describe myself as like evangelical about history. And there have been, Mike and I both grew up in Massachusetts and, you know, everywhere has a history to it. But, you know, where we grew up, you can't, you know, throw you can't throw a snowball without hitting like a statue of a Minuteman or a Paul Revere or, a you know, a Ben Franklin milestone that he left showing the number of miles to Boston. And so, I, you know, as a young person that was like, oh, history, really still, I'm, you know, I've got to be force fed this. But then, you know, sort of became a born again history geek, like probably in my in my 30s. And those moments when you just learn something, when you're like, oh, my God like that's that's how it is and uh i just love that feeling it's getting a little bit more elusive the more you learn about history but i with all of my you know with all the sort of work i do in this area that's definitely what i'm what i'm going after and and mike how did you kind of get to this expert level in beer history because i imagine as a brewer you might share stories as you're working in a brewery or something but did you ever study it academically before this book i I always like to say it's my uh, brewing knowledge comes from a misspent youth. I was an exchange student in Germany in high school. And when I was young, you know, 16, 17 years old, uh, I kind of experienced firsthand European beer culture, uh, where you're not, you know, sitting out behind somebody's garage drinking their father's PBRs, where you, you know, you're having a beer with dinner or what, whatnot. And that sort of led me to appreciate beer at a young, young-ish age. And so I ended up working at a homebrew store in Austin. I, got, I figured out ways of doing all of my side work uh, really fast so I could do basically a week's worth of work in a couple hours. And so what I would do with that extra time is just educate myself. Because in addition to selling homebrew equipment, we sold every beer, every beer book you can imagine. As I, I learned, I, tried, I learned as much of the historical and cultural as well. And so it's just kind of a, a, years and years of osmosis and yeah, I mean, I think I kind of think of our relationship with this book is like was, I was sort of a journalist and Mike was the source. Mm, yeah, that that makes sense. It, the book kind of divides itself between the narrative of beer, uh, you know, through geopolitical scientific developments. And, you know, and it's true to its subtitle, you know, from 7000 BC to today, it really covers a lot of ground. Even I was interested to see the... Uh, like the European revolutions of the 1848. And um, it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, duh, of course, after you have a failed revolution, you're going to want to hightail it out of that place where you just lost. And so a lot of Germans immigrated to America then, and a lot of them became brewers, and a lot of them became mega successful brewers. Again, it was an aha moment for me too. At that same time, you know, you're having immigration from all over Europe into the United States. But a lot of it, you know, in, in Far East, in Eastern Europe, and from like Ireland, uh, tended to be 
really, it was like economic forces that were driving these people out. So the people who came to the United States from Italy, from Ireland, from Russia, Poland, tended to be economic refugees, you know, really poor, and they settled in the East Coast cities and whatnot. Whereas a lot of these Central European, particularly German uh, immigrants were political, more political refugees. So they did, they weren't destitute. They were more middle-class people who were coming over to the United States to actually start businesses. And they came with more skill sets than a lot of the other uh, groups. Uh, and they tended to settle a little farther, more, uh, you know, Midwest area. And these big German communities, in addition to having the capital to start companies like breweries, they also had the other their other German immigrants as a customer base to start up these breweries that became Anheuser-Busch, Miller, Pabst. All the names that we still, to this day, you like just still use today. Schaefer, Stroh, Blatz, Miller, Bush... You know, they're all because of the all, all German names and all largely because of the revolution, the failed revolutions of 1848. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And around the same time was when people finally figured out that there was yeast in beer. And then the, right after that in the book, there's a, a great panel that's points out that people didn't even realize there was alcohol in beer until around this time either, uh, which was crazy to me. Right. There were people used to think that um, if you the way that you would feel like if you were a working, you know, a working class man in uh, Great Britain, they sort of felt that like when you drank something like a very dark brown beer or a porter or something like that, that the, the feeling that you got was a, like a burst of nutrition from all the malt. They felt like the malt was, you know, a very powerful vitamin. And that that was what made them feel so great. Yeah, like uh, Popeye and spinach, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and another distinction I'd like to is people did sort of know that there was yeast. Mike, tell them what the uh, medieval term for yeast was. They used to call it God is good because they didn't know what it did, but they knew that it turned wort into beer. They certainly weren't aware that it was a, a living organism. And they had no idea really what they were doing. But empirically, they realized it's a lot like sourdough bread. It kind of took a little from the last batch to uh, inoculate the next. And so that's how like the yeasts kind of generation to generation. They didn't they weren't they didn't understand that they were doing microbiology. Yeah, it wasn't until Louis Pasteur's work. There were some scientists beforehand who'd uh, scandalized the scientific community by suggesting that yeast might actually be alive. But that was the big breakthrough that Pasteur confirmed and that later that, you know, and that yeast might be might be a whole bunch of different yeast microorganisms together, some which might be good for beer and some maybe not. And then it was later work in uh, Denmark by Hansen, and he found that he could, you know, purify certain strains. And I would think that before that, maybe they did they, the brewers even care about closing the tanks, you know, to like isolate the type of yeast getting in there. Right. And because they didn't know exactly what they were doing, there was a, this, the brewers before these sort of technological innovations and these great leaps forward in the scholarship, the brewers were extremely superstitious about their job and about their product. They worried about all kinds of different things, you know, that could, they did not know to what to really to account to the spoilage of a batch of beer would be. And so they thought it was phases of the moon or elements uh, of earth energy and things like that. They had all kinds of different 
different ideas, and that sort of made them very uncomfortable about moving, about changing anything, because they had kind of a, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it approach. Yeah, and also customers, the beer-drinking public, were also very skeptical of science entering the brewery. And there are stories about, I believe it was Bass, I can't remember right now, but I believe it was Bass, where uh, when they first started to do some sort of very general quality control stuff, they hid all the microscopes because they didn't want anyone to see any kind of scientific equipment in the brewery, lest the customers would suspect that the beer was being doctored. You know, like they're adding stuff because that was actually happening at the time. They saw science as a negative rather than a positive, rather than making the beer cleaner, fresher. They thought it was the only re- the only thing science could do was po- possibly do was uh, doctor the beer in some in some way, like add poison to it or something like that. So the brewers were really, really, in addition to having all these superstitions about what was going on, they were also very reluctant to let anyone know that they were doing these kind of scientific experiments on on quality control. Well, I have two more uh, aha moments I had reading this book. Um, the the next is uh, repealing prohibition. The motivation for that could have been kickstarting the economy in the depression. Um, yeah, I think that could be, and that was. I mean, I think there was, a, you know, obviously people wanted their beer back. People were, you know, finding ways to drink during prohibition. I mean, prohibition was just a mess by all accounts and by every measure. And, you know, people were drinking more, not drinking less. And, you know, moderation of any kind had completely gone away. But the the latter part of Prohibition overlapped with the Great Depression. And, you know, there was a huge, because you think about it, there was, brewing was a huge industry then because there was much less mechanization of the process. There were a lot more, you know, just men involved in brewing and distributing the beer. There were more breweries in every city. There were, you know, and restarting it again would put a lot of people back to work. And so that was certainly a very positive justification that the um, so-called wet politicians at the time had to argue for repealing it. And I think actually conversely as well, at the beginning of Prohibition, one of the reasons that it, that it happened in the first place was that you know, the men uh, were over in Europe fighting World War One, And so they weren't necessarily able to express their displeasure at the fact that their alcohol was going to get taken away. And then the and then on the other end, you know, that's on one end. And then on the other end, those same people were out of work. And, you know, in, in, during World War One, the, the, the dry politics, the dry politicians, meaning the people who did not want alcohol of any kind to be legal and available. Their influence was so pervasive that during World War One, in any kind of American military camp overseas in Europe, they were completely dry. You could not, it was illegal to bring any alcohol of any kind into a military encampment. The soldiers were not, they were the only ones in the field that were not being given, you know, alcohol of any kind as a ration. And of course, by World War Two in Vietnam, that very, very much changed. But in World War One, it was completely dry. And it's also interesting that during, I think, probably more World War Two, but like, that's when a lot of American GIs were exposed to like Belgian beer, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. you and hear a British lot of, beer. yeah, British beer, too. Well, the other thing is a development that did happen in Britain first, which I didn't realize, was that the campaign for real ale, uh, when you're, you know, getting into the development of the current, you know, craft brewing uh, movement, 
that actually developed before it was a kind of ahead of the U.S. craft beer movement being established in 1974. Out of prohibition in the United States, we have what's called the three tier system where you have the producers, the distributors and the retailers. And that's kind of a control mechanism uh, for the distribution of alcohol. Whereas in England, they have what's called the Tide House system, where in general, a, a brewery actually owns, either owns outright or owns the rights to sell beer at certain pubs. So a lot of times you'll go to a bar and it will be a, a Young's beer or a Sam Smith's bar or whatever, and all the beers are from that brewery. The breweries, uh, it made a lot of sense to them to actually purchase other smaller breweries in order to gain access to their pubs. A brewer would buy a smaller brewery, basically close down the brewery, and then serve their beer at the pubs to allow their particular brand to grow. Uh, and one of the things that that did is just that the sort of corporate consolidation of, of beer and the sort of what, what the camera uh, originators saw as the dumbing down of beer. And camera was very early in a... A cons one of the earliest and most successful sort of consumer movements of the consumers saying, wait, hang on, beer drinkers, we want, we don't really want whatever's most profitable and easiest for these big companies. We want beer that tastes good. And, you know, we want the, a pub culture that allows us to hang out with our friends and enjoy, you know, this extension of our living room and the culture, the beer culture around it. You know, that allowed the beer culture in England to continue to thrive. And that English beer culture actually was very influential in the early craft days of the American craft beer movement. Well, there's, there's plenty more in the book. Uh, it's all illustrated beautifully. I didn't talk much about the illustrations, but I, I would be um, surprised if breweries don't want to use some for beer labels, maybe. Oh, I mean, of course we'd love that. Well, that's one of the great things about this book. I mean, you know, there are people out there who are going to read beer books and there, there are people out there who are, love beer and they're not going to probably read a beer book, you know, especially a big scholar, you know, scholarship heavy tome. And, you know, the job of putting something, making a graphic novel out of history, you know, is not a very, you know, wise person once said that, you know, the job is not um, simplifying or dumbing down the content. It's sort of clarifying it. And, you know, when I personally believe that the words and images go together and sort of synergistically do, you know, they're capable of doing an even better job than a prose book would. So, you know, we have 170 pages. Even if this was a prose book, that would be sort of short by, you know, most standards. But this is, uh, you know, never ask an encyclopedia salesman if you need encyclopedias. Yeah, I um I'm not a comic books guy at all or anything, but um I was immersed in it and it it really did feel weighty uh and it, you know like a good reference, you know, very thorough, you know, and not not uh kind of cutting corners or dumbed down or anything Thank like you. that. So That's flattering. <laughs> uh yeah. Well done, guys. Uh if we were in the same place, I would give you a cheers right now. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Hey, Strange Brews listeners, this is Andrew with a couple of updates, things that have happened since we recorded most of this episode on Monday of this week. Of course, uh, AB InBev and Miller are talking about merging. 
Um, also, our guests, Jonathan Hennessy and Mike Smith, uh, the authors of the comic book story of beer, have scheduled a Chicago event. Um, they will be at Beer Miscuous on Saturday, October 3rd from 3 to 5 p.m. So if you'd like to meet these guys and get their uh, book, get it signed, um, have a beer with them, you can do that on October 3rd uh, from 3 to 5 p.m. at Beer Miscuous. And uh, thanks again to everyone who's been reaching out since the uh, news got out that uh, Strange Brews will be wrapping things up soon. Um, Again, if you would like to be included in our final episode, which will be our next episode, please call the fan hotline at 1-888-915-9922. You know, one thing we'd love to hear is uh, what are you normally doing while you listen to Strange Brews? Uh, And what will you listen to in the future when you're doing that activity? Um, that's just one prompt. If you have recommendations to share, uh, breweries that we, uh, weren't able to cover, um, anything you'd like to get on strange brews before we wrap it up, uh, call the hotline and leave that message. This is the Strange Brews Podcast. I'm Andrew Gill with Allison Cuddy, and it's time for recommendations. Um, you know, I was just down in Florida uh, for a little family reunion. Oh, Yeah, we had some days at the beach. It was nice. Um, and my cousin, uh, who uh, works in the um, food and beverage in- industry in Florida, uh-huh. um, he brought a few beers from local Florida breweries. Uh, people have caught on that I want to try the local stuff when I'm down there. So um, kudos to my family for catching on to that. Uh, but he brought a beer from Two Henry's Brewing Company in Plant City, Florida. Now, this Plant City is a town better known for strawberries than beer. Um, they have a giant strawberry festival. But mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of between Tampa and Orlando. And um, I didn't think much of this beer. I got the can. And, you know, it's a can, one of those generic cans that has a sticker label on it, um, which either means you care a ton, like spiteful, and they do all these meticulous labelings, or they're kind of like a small thing that's like a vanity project that doesn't. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I didn't have high hopes, but when I had this uh, uh, Hellas lager called the Gilded Age, it was really, really great, like super nice, precise brewing they, my cousin says they have a very tiny system. Uh, they don't do a ton. They have a little uh, winery there as well. But this was a great uh, lager. So if you can get this beer, which probably means you're in Tampa or Orlando or somewhere in Central Florida, you should try it. It's uh, Two Henry's Brewing Company from Plant City, Florida. If you're on vacation, you could try that as well. There is more than just Cigar City, though. I did also have some highlight that was super fresh <laughs> and really nice. So it's a good beer. Yeah. So I'm sticking with sketchbook, um, but I'm moving from beer to cider, which might be appropriate okay. for our beer stories today. Um, and I'm going to recommend sketchbook Sparta Tarta. They're cherry cider, so they have a common mm. cider they make with apples from Sparta, Michigan. This 
involves cherries, and I'm missing cherries as the summer winds down. Um, we are fully into fall. And I just have to say it's um, it's just a delicious – I mean, they still use apples in it, but it's, it's delicious. It's such a well-balanced cider. It's so dry and tart, and the, the cherries is very, very subtle. Sometimes using those kind of stone fruits can overwhelm the beer or cider. Not so in this case. It's delicious. I think it's 5.6 ABV, which is always a little bit dangerous when it comes to cider, mm-hmm. but really great um, cider. So I highly recommend if you're in the area that you go fill up your growler with some Sparta Tarta and have it at one of your fall dinners because it, it would be a delicious um, starter drink. Fantastic. Yeah, sketchbook brewing, making moves. You know, a lot of times when I'll try a cider from a brewery, mm-hmm. like I when I was down there, I did try a um, a can of like a Cigar City cider, which I don't even I don't know what the deal is with that. I don't even know if they make them or not, but it was just very, very kind of generic. average, yeah, yeah, just generic. I think so. you'd like this one. You should try. Yeah. It. You guys should go up. Very cool. Well, as always, uh, strange brews. You know, you can become a fan. Those fan numbers are becoming very limited. Get it now while you can. <laughs> You'll always be a Strange Brews fan. Yes. But you can have a number if yeah. you get one in the next two weeks. Yeah, exactly. Give us stars and reviews in iTunes. Maybe we can uh, get to number one in the food section before we close out. Right. Email us at strangebrews at wbez.org. Strange Brews is a production of WBEZ Chicago Public Media. You can like us on Facebook at Strange Brews Pod. Use the hashtag Strange Brews to get our attention on Twitter or follow us. I'm Allison Cuddy. And I'm at Andrew Gill. You can subscribe to this and all of our podcasts on iTunes. You can also like WBEZ on Facebook and Twitter at WBEZ. Find more information about this and all of our podcasts at WBEZ.org. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, our world, and beer drinkers and comic book readers just like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Cheers. Here's to change. What's inside of you?